verse 13 to chapter 6, verse 5. I'll give us some time for those that would like to turn there on their own. Uh, otherwise, feel free to follow along up on the screen. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing there before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Good morning, Renewal. My name is David Kim. I'm one of the pastors at Renewal Mainline. And it is my privilege and my honor to deliver this message to you from the book of Joshua. Before we jump in, allow me to open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace, especially your mercy to enable us to worship you this morning. Father, we continue our worship by giving you our attentive ears to hear, to hear your voice through your very word in today's passage. Would you work in every one of our hearts here so that we can see your goodness and see what you've done in your great plan of salvation and how that may show in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. How many times are you supposed to get a birthday present each year? It should be one time, or so I thought. Um, turns out it's more than once, uh, at least in America, and at least in my children's day and age, uh, I remember my, when my children went to my nephew's small family birthday party. Um, and um, it wasn't their birthday. I don't know how old they were. I don't remember, but they didn't get a present because it wasn't their birthday. Uh, they saw the stacked pile of the birthday presents. I saw their faces. They should have known that it wasn't theirs. Uh, they were old enough. But when, they, when that fact fell on them, when they saw that pile being given to, not themselves, but to my nephew, who deserved it, I, it was like slow-mo. That true joy 
got sucked out. And, and you, you saw the genuine anguish fall, like face falling almost literally uh, to its horrible anguish. Um, so we have this horrible tradition of getting gifts for those that aren't the birthday boy or girl, a terrible spoiling tradition that we have at our home that I'm not so supportive of, but I gave in. It's nothing biblical, it's anti-biblical, and yet we do so. I don't know why we do that. Maybe, uh, according to psychologist Jean-Pierre, children below the age of two years uh, think that the universe revolves around them, so much so that they believe objects and people only exist for as long as they are staring at them. It's only after the age of two that they begin to recognize that this isn't the case. Now, this is all true because what he said wasn't that it ends when the, the babies grow past two. It actually begins to change begins to realize that, oh, shoot, this world is bigger than me. And my kids were way past two, but you guys know well that such sense of entitlement doesn't end when you are two. To my kids, that anguish caused precisely because they had such mindset, this, that, and they didn't declare, they didn't confess it out, they didn't live that out, although in their heart, it was real confession that my world, this is my world. This is my show. It was supposed to be for me and run by me. Now, unfortunately, we don't need to be children to experience such phenomena. In fact, we all know that you don't need to be a, a, a child. And I'm sure you can come up with some memories way past the age of two when you felt like people are always watching you. Although you know it's illogical the first time that you go to this first class in your middle school or high school you really feel like they are watching you and they're watching every movement every sound that you make although that is not true and you know how that doesn't grow out when you go to any new place right or feeling entitled to things that you know that aren't yours and you, you, know that's the, you know that that's the fact. That's why you don't say it. That's why you don't live it. But in your heart, you feel that it's yours. While this type of self-centered, narcissistic way, this experience, this might not be a daily reality in everyone's life here, but the, that worldview that functionally works, that lingers around behind this deep heart issue, it's actually present too often, this mindset of how this world should go the way we want it to. Uh, because basically, this is basic, the, the basis of idolatry. Because that's the sin. At the end of the day, you wanting things to do or go your way, wanting things for yourself, those are real experiences that we go through every moment. And deep inside, however old you are, there is that two-year-old crying and we're trying to claim for our stuff only it doesn't manifest in such obvious way rather it comes out in a more subtle way which we get better at hiding it in today's passage we see a man who's going through similar mindset we see joshua that that things should be going in his ways things should be run by him and then we see that in the midst of such struggle god comes to him and he interacts with him let me give you in three points. Uh, first point is Joshua's question that he asks. Second is God's response 
to such question. Third, what our response then is supposed to be. First, we see Joshua asking a question that reveals the heart behind such question. And then second, we see God's response to such question, which actually is not what Joshua expected. And thirdly, we get to see what our response to such answer is. So first point, Joshua's question. As you, as you saw and heard, the main character of today's passage is Joshua, whom the book is named after. And it's today's passage at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. That's today's passage, which is right before the very famous Bible story that you might have grown up hearing, which is the fall of Jericho. The fall of Jericho. And in the specific scene that we're invited to in today's verses, we get to watch what's going on in Joshua's mind just right before that big first battle that we knew what the outcome, but he didn't. Lots of things happened up to this point. Right before their first battle, he has this startling encounter. You get to see that in today's passage. Startling encounter with this mysterious figure. Look at verse 13 with me. Let me read that for us. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. This part where it says, and behold, this original language connotes that he was very suddenly put on alert. And, of course, he should be alerted, alarmed when you're in wartime. You can't associate this type of atmosphere that's going on right now in this room. It was wartime. It was a time that we actually, most of us here, if not all of us, haven't experienced that time of death and life every day just present every day. There's this man then, right before this battle that he was about to go, go to, there's this mysterious man standing before him with a drawn sword. That means threat. And, and he's not identifying who he is. That's why he asks, the verse continues, and Joshua went to him and asked the question. I want to kind of point this out. Joshua is approaching this man. This kind of shows in a, a brave uh, approach to uh, how Joshua is actually give, uh, shown here, but also he's doing it slowly and carefully. He needs to know the loyalty of this person who seemed to be blocking his way. He asks, are you for us or are you against us? That's a question that's easily understandable, a calm before a storm that they're really in the middle of. Everything he needed to prepare for the battle, to the entrance into the Jericho, We'll go into the details more uh, very soon, but it's very understandable that he wants to find out if this figure is an enemy or not. But the response is one that is quite unexpected to Joshua because the man says, no. The question was, are you for us or against us? It wasn't a yes or no question. He, he says, no. No. What does that mean? He says, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. It's a striking response that God actually makes through his messenger. The first part of the response is quite noteworthy when he says no. Now we know as to be angel of the Lord. has responded to Joshua when he says, are you for us or against us? That actually means that he said, are you for us or against us? The subject of this question is me, we. And there's the angel saying, that's the wrong question. Why is that the wrong question? 
because the question reveals that Joshua assumed that this battle that he was preparing for, it was his battle to fight. This people that he's supposed to lead out and lead into the new place, it is his people. It is his victory to bring. So in the midst of this battle of ours, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel's answer quickly makes Joshua realize that. That's why he immediately, let me read that verse, it says, he fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? This isn't a, please note that this isn't a case where we can get, we can go with silly Joshua. We, we knew that. We knew that it was angel. Of course it's God's battle. Of course that's a deep biblical message. But no, if you invest a little bit more into putting on, on his shoes, you can see yourself ask, you might ask the same question. After all, what happened to Joshua up to this point? After all, he is the new leader of this nation. It was this God-given role to lead them into the promised land, a quite lofty task given to him. Trace a little more in this story, and you can feel more sympathy toward Joshua. In the first book of the Bible, you saw Genesis, Genesis 15. God promises to Abraham that he will bless him, and he will bless him with a nation. He will lead him to the promised land. And in the story, it doesn't happen right away. In fact, it takes hundreds of years. And through the story of Moses, through Exodus, and throughout the whole book of Pentateuch, Israel does not make it to the promised land because of their disobedience and their lack of faith. Now, the book of Joshua today then starts with a new generation of Israel. This, this amazing new leader, new leader Joshua that they have after this historical figure, Moses. Moses passed, and Joshua is the successor. One of the themes that you see over and over in Joshua is that God continues to encourage him. God continues to say, be strong and courageous. And even people come together and say, yes, be strong and courageous. Why did that come out? Who, who do you say those things to? You say those things to people who are not feeling strong and not feeling courageous. He was nervous. He was anxious. He was scared. And we understand why he would be. Think about it. Think about the pressure he felt. Take a moment and, and try to think about what he went through, uh, what Moses meant to him, what the nation meant to him. Think about Moses. Who, what kind of guy was he? We, we grew up hearing about this story. They didn't. And, of course, they're in a different generation. But they lived it. They saw it with their own eyes, what Moses did. He is way greater Martin Luther King. Imagine a Martin Luther King with magic. He, he did ten plagues right in front of the nation's eyes. This miracle. And, and he, they were right in the middle of the crossed, uh, parted ocean. Joshua was there. And Moses was the leader of that. And Joshua is supposed to fill in that shoes. Have you, have you felt such pressure in your life? Such pressure. When everything seems like now it's in your hands, here you go. That great Moses, he didn't even make it though. But you can do it. Be strong and courageous. You can do it. Imagine that. Just, just think about that emotion. 
But if the emotion of Joshua was feeling more complicated uh, and, than just feeling nervous, because if we call this, this emotion, if we imagine a coin to, be, to represent his emotion, the one side was actually the nervousness, that anxiety. The other side was excitement because it wasn't just the beginning. In the book of Joshua, it actually starts to go well. Things start to work out. He, he made this amazing inauguration speech, and it was explosive. People received it. People was bowing down. People was dedicating to God. It looked good. And then you hear about these successful story about the spies into the new land as opposed to the failed version of their previous generation, those two spies with the help of Rahab, very contrary to what they grew up hearing. So this is hopeful. This looks good. When God says, be courageous, be strong, I'll make this happen, Joshua gets to see that, oh, this is working. And in chapter 3, just as the crossing of the Red Sea for their parents' generation, the whole Israel then crosses the Jordan River miraculously. And so now they are in the middle of such miracle. And after that, a whole new generation goes through a generational circumcision in the beginning of chapter 5, a, a renewing the promised sign and a seal of God's covenant. And for the first time in 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness, remember, remember that they lived through a really difficult time. And this is a new generation that was born and raised in wilderness. And then now for the first time, they made it. And this passage, right before today's passage, the story is about the first Passover that they, that they have in the new land with the new food that they tasted. And then the manna ceased. Remember the manna that they were miraculously being supported, being um, supported with the nutrients and all the things that they sustained, literally their life. That ended. So it's that exciting and nervous moment where things are happening. So it makes sense that he would feel nervous, but he would feel excited about these accomplishments that are being made. It's amazing. It's an amazing place to be, but a very daunting place to be. So in the, in the middle of this, this crazy tornado of emotions, that's, that's where we find Joshua, and it's about to happen. What Joshua probably didn't catch internally was that he was the one that kept spinning that coin of emotion with the deeper temptation of this thought that is now revealed from the angel. That actually he was working on this platform that actually said, this is your battle. This is your things to do. This is your world to run. Your people to do it. All these achievements. Look at, they pro he probably heard these praises and he probably felt this excitement, and he probably was tempted to allocate that and credit that to himself. It's probably why he also felt all the more anxious, because all the more weight, all the more pressure. To that, God graciously appears to him, and he says, stop with that thinking. Let's see how the angel answers uh, further in point two. Point two is God's response. In his response, God reminds Joshua of his sovereignty. That's what Joshua forgot, God's sovereignty. When Joshua said, are you for us or against us? The angel says, neither, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. 
what that means is angel is identifying the real what's really going on he's saying hey this isn't your battle this is my battle that you were invited to this is my battle these are my people in fact this is my world that i'm running remember that this this thing that you're dearly dearly holding on to it's in my hand and the method how you do that is mine too when Joshua forgets God's sovereignty, God's, God moves closer to him. That's grace. He came to this lost Joshua, and he reveals who he is. That's what God does. That's grace. God's grace, when we are lost, he comes to us. The gracious yet mighty presence of God's glory leads Joshua immediately to fall on his face and worship him. And this time he asks the right question, what does the, my Lord say to his servant? Let me read verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This, this initial and primary commandment that God gives in his response is, When you recognize who I am, when you see my sovereign hands in this world, your first response should be, and look at you doing so, worshiping me. This is almost identical to God showing himself to Joshua's predecessor, Moses, when God went to meet Moses in the burning bush, uh, where he says the place is holy because this is where he is meeting with his people. And you can compare in other scenes with this commissioning scenes of prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. In all of these cases, God meets with them, and, and he's giving directions and instructions, the demonstration of those things but he's actually demonstrating something before that his holiness actually precedes the charges charges given our recognition of who he is proceeds what we do in life in response to who he is so my question to us is have we have you ever found yourself being anxious or nervous um, do you catch yourself during those times taking off your sandals of your daily lives and do you find yourself worshiping do you find yourself surrendering to the sovereignty of god or are you more like me where a true worship is not so present at least in my heart i could mimic it i could do it in other circumstances but in my heart do, do you in your heart do you find yourself worshiping the lord recognizing his goodness his almighty power and his justice and do you bow down or do you some do you do something else our third point further elaborates what such worship looks like that's our response to the answer our response of worship god's call for joshua was a for a reverent submission first of all Worship comes before the winning. And we actually get to see further in chapter 6 that worship actually is strategy. It's not worship and then move on. It's actually worship and worship. You first worship and you actually continue to worship. That's the rest of today's passage. Chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. We hear this long and descriptive instruction given by God. Let me read that for us for the sake of really hearing that. 
It says, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Do you remember the first time you read this story or heard this story? And what was the lesson? Do you remember the lesson? Or how about the current, the present understanding of this passage? What is the significance of this passage? Are you like me where you thought the significance was in the insignificance of the things? A meaningless routine of things to do for them to do to, to, to show God their faith or something? One of my uh, favorite Old Testament professors, his name is Dr. Duguid, find his commentary on this passage super helpful to understand further into our lessons here. Um, He says this, to us, this idea of marching around the city seven times in procession may seem like a random test of obedience. That's exactly what I thought. I thought it was an equivalent of God saying to Joshua, hey, make people do the cha-cha or, or you sit around in circle and uh, in today's equivalent, I don't know, I'm outdated, uh, like silently without laughing, like doing floss in front of the wall um, and, 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 don't, and, and don't laugh and looking at Jericho, stare at like that kind of weird, meaningless thing to do. That's how I understood it. It's tempting to think about that in that way, but Dr. Duga continues, but this is no random motion. It's a very odd way to fight the battle, but Joshua would have known exactly what he was asked to do. In the Old Testament, processions are typically around sacred objects, such such as the altar in Psalm 118.27, or even a city in uh, Nehemiah 12, with the purpose of consecrating the item that is being circled. In this case, Jericho is being consecrated as a sacrifice to the Lord, being put on the altar ready for the knife to descend. Everything contributes to the picture of holy war. The seven priests blowing the ram's horn, the ark symbolizing God's presence with his people. Nothing could be clearer than the fact that this is God's war. Yet it is a war in which he invites his people to participate. They do not lounge around on a hillside waiting for the news that Jericho has fallen. They have to march. They have to shout. They have to do all these things. But God gives the victory. Worship is not the only initial response to our recognition of his sovereignty. It is, in fact, the main strategy of living life. And in this case, doing battle. God's battle. The method, strategy of God's battle is worship. Then where is this, this so-called battle taking place in relations to us in our lives? What does, that, what does such worship look like? 
We'll get to how we relate to such battle, but uh, the depth of worship, the nature of worship is further investigated by Dr. Duguid. I would like to invite you further into that because I found this really helpful. So one of the concerns that I had was just generally that violence, uh, idea of war, blood, annihilation, so to speak, that just prevalent in Joshua and actually the book of the Bible. You, you might have run into that. Here, Dr. Dugo says, a Hollywood version of this passage would have focused less on Joshua's encounter with angel and way less on the instructions given here. Probably would have focused on the real action, the heroic assaults on the city, the blood and gore of the hand-to-hand combat. You could imagine that kind of like Netflix series of Joshua, the fall of Jericho. You don't expect this long description of how to do so, all these instructions, these encounters, you will see the action. That's what we would expect. But, but this is the funny part, uh, Dr. Dugo says, but here the narrator gives a mere two verses in the most matter-of-fact style. That's verses 20 and 21. It says, it happened, and so it happened, and the wall fell. Rather, way more verses were dedicated to describing how Joshua was instructing the people of Israel. It was focused on the way, the right way to do it. In other words, for the writer of the book of Joshua, winning is not everything. It is possible to win the battle and lose the war if what Israel is engaged in is holy war, in which the Lord is their commander, in which it is the Lord who wins the victory, then they cannot fight as if the battle was theirs. This is no ordinary warfare. This is holy war. And if, you were, if this was a lecture, and, and if you were sitting in, this, in, in that class hearing about war and war and holy war, hopefully you're getting kind of startled, maybe. That was how I was, that's how I respond. Every time I hear these things, War. What is holy war? In holy war, the Israelites were acting as the agents of God's righteous judgments. That's why they were to destroy the city and all of its inhabitants outright. Here, they function as the human equivalent of the fire and brimstone from heaven that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and all of its residents, young and old. And in Genesis 15, the Lord explains to Abraham why the fulfillment of the promise of the land was delayed and why indeed what happened after 400 years of sojourn in Egypt. Canaanites are, were, were not ready to be destroyed. In God's plan. Canaanites are not to be destroyed by Israel because they just happen to find themselves in the way of progress. They're not innocent bystanders that are mown down by God's gentrification of their neighborhood. They are judged by God because their sin has reached their full measure. Now, this is not how Israel was to fight all of their wars, only the ones connected to the conquest, because God's judgment has been issued against the Canaanites. If you're living in the same generation as me, you would have been exposed, perhaps overexposed to such humanitarian approach to understanding things, especially looking at history, and especially looking at the biblical history, and especially looking at the violence there. When we're operating with that humanitarian understanding of they all deserved chances, they were all good people, 
They were all good people. But that's actually not the worldview that the, this world operated on. In fact, if we actually do dive deeper into how Canaanites were like, that kind of gives us a little more understanding of how they weren't that good, even to our 21st century centurions. Uh, they were actually prominent with uh, child sacrifices, and they were doing all these things that were against God's law. And to our law, our heart's law, our moral code, they were doing all these things. So, they weren't good people. In fact, we aren't good people. We're not good. We don't not deserve punishment. We're not innately good. We want to say that out loud, but, but it's not true. We want to read the Bible, and we want to, want to understand God, and we want to view and portray him in the way that is, he's portrayed in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, this is how it reads. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving weakness, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We want to stop there to understand how God is, who he is. But if you don't stop reading that same passage, you actually get to read this verse. The Lord goes on to reveal himself in the same passage here as the one who does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is what it says. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. That's why in Joshua, when judgment fell upon Canaan, it was to be swift, inexorable, and completely lacking in pity because it was supposed to be God's judgment. These are hard for us to read, isn't it? These are hard pills to swallow for us to be exposed to, basically saying we aren't good. See, this wasn't hard just for us, though. Ancient minds also didn't like this. Uh, I don't know if you know this guy called Martian. Martian is an early church heretic. He wanted to get rid of large portions of the Old Testament because he found them barbaric. Uh, and people always in history have wrestled with this side of God's character, his justice. On the other hand, this does not mean that we should be quick to adopt such ways in a personal manner, to adopt such hostile attitude toward our enemies. This is what uh, Dr. Drew continues. Jesus, this is what Jesus did. Jesus rebuked John and James when they were wishing to initiate eschatological violence, a fire from heaven on the Samaritan village who refused to receive Jesus. Our period here in this redemptive history is the time of the preaching of the gospel, not judgment by our hands. Now is a time of bringing in the daughters of Rahab. I do wish every sermon these, these past few weeks, Pastor Bill has uh, encouraged you to meditate on the passages, on the chapters that we aren't reading uh, during this time, right? Because we're going into different books. I do wish that you actually do read Joshua. It might not be pleasant if you continue on, but I do want you to read it and see how that goes. 
this history. We're not living in that history anymore. But in chapter 2, even in there, during that time, we see God's gracious redemption uh, for Rahab and her family. Now, but for our generation, what gives urgency of such task of evangelism is the very knowledge that there is a day of judgment coming for the nations. There is a day coming where the heavenly trumpet will sound and the angelic counterpart of Joshua's trumpets will be sounded and the time of judgment will begin. And those who are spared in the judgment will be only those who, like Rahab, have covenanted with Israel's God. For the rest, men and women, old and young, there will be nothing to expect except the eternal fire. Jericho, this is how the professor ends, Jericho stands as an awful warning of the reality of God's wrath against sin. If you ever read these parts of the Bible, if you ever or were mentioned on, on those things, and if you had, were ever appalled by them, by its sheer violence and how uncomfortable you might have felt, or maybe opposite, I don't think many of us here are feeling this way, but if you are like rejuvenated by the violence and yeah, go get them, God, they deserved it, those two things don't work really well biblically. They are not biblical understanding of how the world works because those things actually operate on the wrong premise. The wrong premise is this. When you read the scripture, you're reading as if Israel in this story, as we are Israelites. But you're not. We're not the Israelites. In this story, we're the Jericho. We're the one, the sword that is drawn by the angel. That drawn sword is pointing at us. That divine judgment is pointing at Jericho, and we are Jericho. Verse 1, it was said, the wall was shut up inside and outside. None went out, none came in. We're the Jericho. And if you read on, you, you actually get to see that surely Israel themselves weren't excluded from such judgment. In the end of Joshua, it, 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 it almost sounds like it's finally done, it's happily ever after. But that seems to abruptly end. Abruptly. It happens uh, that that happy ending is destroyed abruptly as the period goes straight into the time of judges. Uh, a time of chaos and disharmony, to say the least. If you ever read Judges, it's the worst thing that you can read in human violence and human atrocity. Not only do we know this end, not only we know this end, the original audience of this passage, they knew the end too. They knew that it didn't end well. They knew that the promised land that was earned by obedience was lost by their disobedience. They know that in history, it was restored in a glimpse in the time of David and Solomon only to disappear in the reenactment of such disharmony and disorder. Because that's why they were left looking for someone to give us such lasting rest that Joshua never gave us. And we're looking for someone the same, the lasting rest that David couldn't give us. That judgment is real. His sword is drawn. 
and the imminent doom was inevitable when that sword was pointing right to our hearts. Exactly pointing directly right at our hardened hearts that was as high as the wall of Jericho. That wall was high. We weren't able to save ourselves. We're not, right? Ever since Adam and Eve brought sin into humanity, we were doomed, and we continue to live that out. We participated in it. We couldn't help but to think that this is ours to run. But ultimately, and you know deep inside that it's not working, that we are doomed. When that sword was directed right at us, it was none other than God himself, the Son of God who stood in front of us. And he pulled the sword away. And he pointed that right back to his own heart. He was the only one in this history that did not deserve to be pointed at with that judgment. And yet he did so for us. As for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he received that judgment. And then he became the ultimate offering, as Hebrews 10 reminds us. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, we are sanctified. And there is no longer any other offering for sin. Once and for all, he has done so. We are now sanctified, and we no longer need any kind, any other kind of offering, any kind of doing. And as Ephesians chapter 2 says, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He was the one that broke down that wall. God is the one that breaks down such wall. And Jesus did so. That's how he redeemed us. That's how he brought us back to the true worship that he deserved. Through repentance and through faith in Christ, we are enabled now to give God the true worship that he deserves. This means that now we can recognize who he is, that we could see his goodness, his justice, and his love through Christ. Now we can, through Christ, confess our sins successfully. We could confess our inability to confess our need of him. We can live a life of thanksgiving, obedience, constantly asking for his instruction. That's worship. We could live a life of worship now. Not just this moment right here that we call worship. Yes, this is time of worship. This is special. This is good. This is honoring. But a life of worship is restored by our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me conclude with the question, do you find yourself ending up to remove your sandals and worshiping the Lord? Every moment that you face anything, facing any anxiety, any good outcome, any nervous uh, things and processes, do you find yourself worshiping the Lord? Do you live a life of worship? Or, or, or is there an absence of such? I wish I could say such true heart of worship is present in my everyday facet of life, but that's not true and in fact is too absent sad to share 
But praise God, He is the one that sanctifies us again and again. And more and more, He brings us closer to Him, brings me closer to Him to live a life that worships Him more and more and more often and more often. So where do you ever feel that? Where do you ever see the absence of your worship, the heart of worship? Do you ever go through that experience? Um, I think the harshest realization that I get to make is when I find myself getting mad at my children. And the startling uh, realization that I feel so righteous in that anger when they drop cookie crumbs on the table for the thousandth time after my millionth time of telling them you should not eat uh, away from table they drop food and I get mad and I take it personally and I say this is a direct attack against me I told you and now you heard it and now you're disobeying is this personal attack the sad part is that kind of process of thought doesn't stop automatically. I stay there until I'm interrupted, interrupted by the question that asks, what's in your heart, man? Why are you mad at these cookies that you can vacuum again? Yes, you told them the trillionth time to not eat away from the table. Yes, you told them to do these things, but why are you mad? And that really makes, us, makes me realize that because this was my, my house, my table, and you dare disobey this simple instruction, and it's good instruction, and why would you do such thing? To me, this is a direct, again, this is my world, I get to realize. That's how I'm operating on. It's miserable to find myself, to, th to be thinking that way, which breaks me physically, on my, not in front of them. Not too often, but it makes me break and say, Lord, how ridiculous I think. Do you have similar experiences where that ridiculous two-year-old pops up again and that actually has too much place in your heart? That when you actually can't control that feeling of, oh, I really want that. That's not mine, yes, but as I really want that. Or I really need that to happen. I really need it to happen this way. And it has to be this way. Because this is my world. Oh, it's so embarrassing to say out loud. But it is my world. Do you find your two-year-old coming back again? In fact, do you see that sinfulness that come out? That's what our Lord Jesus Christ died for. That's why he had to receive such blow from the drawn sword. That's why we get to turn back to him and be reminded to worship him wholeheartedly. Where do you find yourself worshiping or the absence of worship? That's why I would like to call upon our brothers and sisters here once again to look upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Every time anything happens, every day, every moment, to find rest in him, to find peace in him to praise him, to ask for his guidance through this time. And can we not desire this for only for our own? Can we actually pray for our brothers and sisters here and for others around the globe? Can we pray for such restoration of the heart of worship 
in their lives. And can, you, can we not stop here, here physically in this room? Can we bring it home? If you have children, can we bring that? Can we lead a time? Can we lead a time for them to be exposed to such worship? Can we show them what that looks like? Not a fake action of it, not a meaningless routine that they say, okay, by doing so, it means something. No, but the genuine heart of worship, they get to be convinced that they mean this. Our parents mean this. They really believe this. And when they actually get to see us repenting and, and asking for their forgiveness, I pray that they get to see Jesus through you guys. If you're alone, can you start a day? Can you end a day with worship? Not a ritualistic worship. I tell you time and time, not that behavior of it, not the ritual, not the religious action of it, the heart of it. Can you truly see Christ, see God for who he is, the sovereign mercy of him, the powerful hand that he has on every part of life? And can you worship the Lord? Can you please worship the Lord through his word, through prayer, and through obedience, just finding rest in him? I pray that everyone here to find rest in, in the sufficiency of Lord Jesus Christ, awaiting such final victory, promised on the cross, living a glimpse of such victory in our daily lives. Let's pray. Can I invite us to just take a moment, just take a brief moment to reflect what Joshua, uh, what you read here and what you heard and can you be attentive to the Holy Spirit? Is he revealing anything in your heart? Where do you find yourself not worshiping? Why? What leads you to that? Can we lay that out, lay that down, and say, Lord, I worship you. You are the sovereign Father. Let's pray.